Our scripture reading this morning will be from two passages. Um, The first passage I'll have us read, and then I'll refer to the second one later. But if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. I'm going to be reading verses 12 through 19, and you'll find that on page 899 of your church Bibles. 899 of your church Bibles, John 12, 12 through 19. It's the account of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as this is Palm Sunday. Doesn't look like Palm Sunday from outside, but we're making Palm Sunday happen right here in this room. So uh, the sunshine and the warmth are coming right here. John chapter 12, 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, now that's the Passover feast, that is Israel's greatest uh, holy day, holy season, where Israel commemorates the exodus of Egypt and slavery and God's promise of deliverance in that great Passover celebration. The feast They'd come to the feast, they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, that is, after his resurrection, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word. So in his book titled, The Final Days of Jesus, the scholar named Andreas Kostenberger contends that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, on March the 29th, A.D. 33. It's a fascinating book that I would recommend, but he's done the calendar research in March 29th, A.D. 33. Jesus had been teaching and doing miracles. If you were to go back through John's gospel, you would see the signs and wonders that Christ had been doing, validating his work. And verse 12 says, Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now that information is more than just where. It's why. Jesus was going to Jerusalem in order to be captured. Jesus was going to Jerusalem in order to be crucified. Jesus was going to Jerusalem in order to die. He was going there to be resurrected. He was going there to bring about the first Easter. And so on Palm Sunday, Jesus entered the holy city to invite God's holy promised people, Israel, so that through them all nations would be blessed, not just them. But he was inviting God's elect nation to follow him 
as the long-awaited messianic king, the one who was the fulfillment of all of the promises of the prophets, who had talked about a king coming. He was inviting Israel to receive his divine rule, his peace. It was a dramatic message to a city teeming with hundreds and thousands of pilgrims for the nation's greatest holy day, the Passover, this celebration of Exodus. Jesus came to offer a greater Exodus from slavery to sin. And so verse 14 says that he secured a young donkey. He found a young donkey and sat on it, meaning it was unbroken. Now think with me for just a minute. What do you think typically happens when you get on a young animal that hasn't been broken and then steer it into a crowd? Well, not Jesus. Because that little donkey knows who the master is. And here's what's interesting too. Up till now, the gospels never record Jesus riding on an animal. He always walked. But not this time. Because Jesus was sending a message. He's the royal king of peace. And that's why he's on a donkey and not a stallion. (laughs) You don't go into battle against the Roman Empire on a young donkey. But Jesus was fighting a different kind of battle. He was waging a war against sin. And his actions triggered messianic memories from the Hebrew scriptures. Those who witnessed the triumphal entry into Jerusalem could not help but remember Solomon's entry into Jerusalem years, centuries before in 1 Kings 1. Or Jehu, who rode over a royal carpet spread out by Israel in 2 Kings 9. Verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And the crowd was just celebratory. Verse 17 says that they continued to testify to the raising of Lazarus, this mighty sign that occurred in John chapter 11. The crowds were gathering. Was he the one who did this? Was he the one who did this? I mean, if, if the Messiah, if he has the power to heal and raise the dead, who can stop him? What's next? And they continued to testify. And While all of this was going on, Jesus' religious enemies, the Pharisees, were harumphing at it all, hissing and seething at Jesus, at his waxing popularity and their waning influence. And in verse 19 it says, they took out their exasperation on one another like a windless team that turns to itself, pointing fingers and firing coaches. Verse 19, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, why would they say that? Well, because the because the Pharisees wanted the world to go after them. <laughs> That's why. They were glory hungry. Glory hungry. That's the term one author puts. We 
we're, we're, we're oriented toward glory, aren't we? The human types we are. Animals aren't. Your dog does not care who wins the Masters today. Right? Should be done by the time I'm preaching. They started early today. But people are attracted to glory, right? People are glory hungry. Whether it's an exciting drama or a sports game or an enthralling piece of music or the best meal ever, we're glo- we're you know, animals live by instinct and they exist to survive. We, there is a glory hard wiring in our lives that leads us to passionately pursue that which is beyond ourselves. And, and God built this orientation into our lives. And because of this glory orientation, our lives will always be shaped by the pursuit of some kind of glory. But therein lies the problem, right? Because what we chase, we become. What we glory after, we resemble. What we worship, we take on. And when what we chase after is from below instead of from above, when our glory goes after that which is horizontal instead of vertical, when we go after the things of earth instead of the things of heaven, well, then we end up violating the 10th commandment. You thought I was going to forget about that, didn't you? We've been studying through the Ten Commandments, and this morning we're at the Tenth Commandment. And don't you find it interesting that the Tenth Commandment appears in the triumphal entry? That's, that's, that's verse 19. You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after. What is that? That's the violation of the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. Exodus 20. Verse 17, that's the second passage that I want us to share. In fact, let's all read it together. Here we go. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not covet. Israel's fundamental legal code, think about this for a minute. Israel's fundamental legal code, that statute which made it in the top ten, contains a crime of the heart. Crime of the heart. I mean, this is unique in the history of the world, church. I mean, there's no other equivalent to this Outside the nation of Israel, nothing like this existed in the ancient world. And I think about that commandment, and I just have many questions. You know, well, questions like, 
Okay, how, how does such a great document like the Ten Commandments, a, a document that begins so majestically, I am the Lord your God, brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It just begins so majestically. How could something like that, uh, that which begins so majestically, conclude with no covet donkey? Right? I mean, you know, as far as public speaking goes, it's kind of a flat conclusion. What is that about? And besides, how do you enforce that anyway? How do you enforce that? Right? I mean, does God want to establish a, a, a thought police? Is that it? And how do you prosecute it? Well, I mean, what kind of evidence would be admissible in court? Perhaps this commandment is here to remind us of who gave the commandment. See, God spoke all of these commandments to his people himself. He, he didn't give a memo to Moses to pass on. And perhaps this commandment is here to say, you know, I, I'm more than a patrol. I, I, I'm more than just 24-7. I'm a pastor. And you're my people, the Lord says. I, I'm a shepherd who cares about the condition of your heart. And there it is. This commandment begs the question, just what is the condition of your heart? What is in your heart? What does your heart beat for? Who does it beat for? You know, the heart may be hidden, but the heart can't hide, really. The heart's got to come up for air. And when it does, everybody can see. Really. And so this commandment reminds us that beneath our nice Sunday smiles and pressed pants and button-down collar starch shirts, there are criminals in our church. And the pastor is one too. And eventually, our hidden hearts surface and pagans take notice. Pagans take notice. I find it interesting that in Mark chapter 15, verse 10, it says that Pilate perceived that it was out of envy. Envy, coveting, jealousy. Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered Jesus up. A pagan could see that. You shall not covet. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to, to, to covet? Well, well, it's from the Hebrew word, chamad, chamad. Let's say that together on three. One, two, three. Chamad. You got to kind of do a little, okay? Got to, you do, right? One, two, three. Chamad, chamad, to covet. It means desire, that's just what it means. It means desire. But the commandment is not the prohibition of desire. 
Because coveting requires a direct object. And it requires a modifier. So the direct object, you shall not covet house, marriage, employees, transportation, anything. And modifier, what's the modifier? Of your neighbor. So, So coveting says, I want what's yours so that I have it and you don't. And that's, what, that's the problem. Coveting is this deformed desire to seize what rightfully belongs to your neighbor so that you have it and they don't. Co- coveting doesn't say, I want one. Coveting says, I want that one. I want that one. The one you have. And so coveting is as much about depriving from you as it is acquiring for me. So that the covetous man experiences this reversal of positions. And I cannot help but think about my life in Tulsa with my two brothers, uh, uh, Robbie and Ricky. Robbie, Randy, Ricky. We're around the table. And mom and dad, they, they come and they give us, uh, they bought a, a dozen apple fritters for Saturday morning breakfast. And so we're, we're eating and I look at mine, but I look at Robbie's. And I want Robbie's. I want Robbie's because I want to, because Robbie's the oldest and I don't like it that he's the oldest and I want, I want some power and that fritter will give me power. So, so see the, the possession is really incidental. What I want is what I think the possession grants me and the fritter will give me command. That apple fritter will give me admiration and respect. The right house, the right spouse, the right car, the right home, the right college pedigree. Because that would make me the right person with God-like status. And what was the first temptation in the garden? You will be like God. Who can turn that down? And thus not to have it or receive it, or acquire it, would somehow, you know, make me deficient, or defective, or less worthy. And notice that coveting has to do with relationships. Your neighbor. Your neighbor. So specifically, it's the material stuff that belongs to someone else. Someone I know. My neighbor's spouse. My neighbor's house, my neighbor's stuff. And at this point, I'm reminded by an insightful quote from an overlooked theologian, Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) Didn't see that one coming, did you, Eric? (laughs) Listen. So the 1991 thriller, Silence of the Lambs, or the 1988 novel, uh, this incarcerated serial killer named Hannibal Lecter, he's got, this, he's got this strange acquaintance with a young FBI special agent named Clarice Starling. And Hannibal Lecter is in a, he's in this special cell designed to prevent any possibility of escape, and, and Clarice Starling gets to know him. She, she wants his help in trying to capture another serial killer. And so 
Lecter agrees, and there's this intense scene where uh, Hannibal Lecter explains to Clarice Starling where she should begin to look. And in the process, he gives her this piece of theology. He asks, what is the principal thing the killer does? What's the reason he does what he does? Right? Clarice is stumbling, you know, anger, uh, rage, uh, power, and, and, and Lecter says, no, he covets. He covets, and, and how do we begin to covet? Do we seek out things to covet? No, no, it happens in chance encounters. Your killer is a covetous man. He wants something he can't have. And then Lecter says this. He says, coveting is a very literal sin. We don't covet imagined things. Rather, we covet tangible things. And here's the theology. Here it is. He says, we covet what we see every day. We covet what we see every day. Our neighbor's marriage. Our neighbor's home. Our neighbor's car. Our neighbor's fame. Our neighbor's money. See, we, we want what our neighbor has, not what some stranger has. I don't covet some mega church celebrity pastor in Texas. It's the pastor across town that gives me heartburn. (laughs) Yeah. And coveting happens when my eyes decree that I deserve your world and you don't. I deserve everything in your world. We see their house. They They don't deserve it. I deserve it. I'm thinking of something Millard Fuller of Habitat for Humanity once said to a room of 200 pastors at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He asked a seemingly innocent question. He's talking about Habitat for Humanity and the ministry. And Here's the question. He says, is it possible for a person to build a house so large that it's sinful in the eyes of God? Raise your hand if you think so. And all 200 pastors raised their hands. Millard said, okay. Can you then tell me exactly what size, the precise square footage, a certain house becomes sinful to occupy? And there was silence. From the pastors, you could have heard a pen drop. Until one small voice spoke up from the back of the room. When it's bigger than mine. (laughs) You see? What about someone else's job? You ever said to yourself, they don't deserve that office, they don't deserve that promotion. They don't deserve that laptop. I could, do, I could do their job better. I could do their job better. Ever, ever caught yourself hoping your coworker would make a mistake so that you could gain an edge? 
Ever been tempted to say something or do something that you know, might sink their ship? Has that ever happened to you? It's no secret that adultery occurs among friends. Several married couples enjoy friendships with one another, and then over the course of time, one of the spouses in, in, in one of the couple's groups will think about the other spouse. Well, that's the kind of spouse I'd like to have if anything ever happens to my spouse. And, then the, the, and this, this thought becomes a thrill, and admiration decays into flirtation and seduction. In commandments 6 through 9 forbid depriving the rights of others to life, marriage, property, and reputation. And commandment 10 says, I don't even want you thinking about it. I don't even want you to set it in motion. And here's what's something else interesting about this 10th commandment. And I hadn't seen it until this week. How many times have I read through the Ten Commandments? And I've just overlooked this, but maybe you've seen this before. But So the, ten, the Tenth Commandment, verse 17, lists seven covetable items. Okay? And go up to the Fourth Commandment, the Sabbath Commandment. Lists seven participants. And some of those participants are the Kind of the things that are covetable show up later. And the point is this, that the coveter fails to see that what matters most in life are not the things that cannot be shared, but the things that can be shared. Things like God's word and communion and the baptism we witnessed at the close of first service and worshiping in community with our family in Christ and the Holy Spirit and the shared inheritance that we have. Those are the things. The Sabbath is a time of shared relational refreshment with family and community, the community of God's people. But you see, coveting ravages that. Because you cannot have community with people you covet. You just can't. You can play Monopoly all day long. But this is not Monopoly. This is not a game. And this is not a 70, 75-minute experience that we go to weekly. This is a family. And God wants us getting along with one another. And I guess that's what takes us to the really the, the, the core of the why of commandment number 10. The coveting shows just a blatant lack of love for God. Coveting betrays dissatisfaction and discontentment. God, this is just not good enough. God, this is inadequate. This is inadequate. My shelter, it's inadequate. My marriage, inadequate. Children, inadequate. God, why do I have to have this life? I want their life. I want their world. So much of our frustration comes from wanting what God hasn't given us. And by the way, what if your covetous dream actually came through? What if, what if you won the coveting game and you got that spouse or that home or the oxen, or the job. What, do you, what would that do to your soul? Would that nourish you? 
or consume you? And what would it do to your neighbor? What would your fulfilled desires do to your neighbor? See, that the fiction is assuming that getting what we covet will satisfy all of our desires, but that's impossible because we have far too many desires. That's why the poet wrote, it was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, and it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. And one day when my life was over, I realized I never got what I wanted. That's a sad life, don't you think? Well, here's a proverb. You won't forget this. It's Proverbs chapter 30, verses 15 and 16. A leech has twin daughters named Gimme and Gimme More. Look it up. And then it continues. Three things are never satisfied. No, there are four that never say, that's enough, thank you. Hell, a barren womb, a parched land, a forest fire. Do we really want to be in that list? No. Say something positive, Pastor. Okay. Here it is. Here it is. The solution to the covetous heart is not a technique, and it's not a strategy, and it's not a set of steps. The solution is Jesus. Jesus is the solution. God is the solution. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So, so contentment is neither complacency nor laziness nor settling. God has given you certain gifts to be developed. He expects you to develop that. Those are his gifts that he gave you. But contentment is, contentment is wanting what God wants more than coveting what I covet. Contentment is praying the prayer that Jesus prayed before he was crucified. Father, not my will, but thine be done. That's the prayer of a contented heart. 
Contentment is being so satisfied with God that I can smile over what he has or hasn't given. Contentment is Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. That's the prayer of contentment. Contentment, one author says, is a state of heart in which you would be at peace if God gave you nothing more than he already has. Now you think about that for just a minute. What if God, what if God's only gift to you were his grace to save you? Could you be content with that, would you? I mean, you beg him to save the life of your child. You plead with him to rescue your marriage. You, you beg him to keep your business afloat. You implore him to remove the cancer from your body. And what if his answer is, my grace is sufficient for you? Would you be content with that? You see, from heaven's point of view, grace is enough. If God did nothing more than save us from hell, really, who could complain? Having, having been given eternal life, dare we grumble about an aching body? Having been given heavenly riches, dare we bemoan earthly poverty? The fact is, God has blessed us with more. I'm mindful of the prayer a pastor once prayed Lord, I've been rereading the record of the rich young ruler and his obviously wrong choice, but it has set me thinking. No matter how much wealth he had, he could not ride in a car, turn on a light, buy penicillin, watch TV, wash dishes in running water, use a laptop, mow a lawn, fly in an airplane, sleep on an inner spring mattress, or use a, a smartphone. If he was rich, then what am I? Now, contentment belongs, to a, contentment belongs to a grateful heart that beats for God. There it is. Contentment, a grateful heart that beats for God. A grateful heart that beats for God. So there's this prayer. Oh, Lord, you've given me so much. Give me one more thing, a grateful heart. Give me a grateful heart. And when you have a grateful heart, when you have a grateful heart, you're not a slave. You're not. When you have a grateful heart, you have been emancipated from dead-end dreams. When you have a grateful heart, you're released from the bondage of always trying to make the great or being a cut above. When you have a grateful heart, you can say, you know, I admire that object, and I'm glad you own it and enjoy it, and I'm also glad that I don't have to pay for it or maintain it or insure it. Yeah, contentment. Is, is contentment is peace with God himself. That's why David could pray in the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. Which then brings us back to the very first commandment. So we have come full circle. Oh, that's why that commandment is number 10. Because that takes us right back to the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Because the apostle Paul informs us in Colossians chapter 3 that covetousness is nothing, nothing else but idolatry. An imposter God wanting to woo us. And idols promise, promise, 
promise, but they never deliver. And they take and they take and they take, but they never give. And that's not our God. So let your grateful heart beat for him, does it? Will it? At the close of these commandments, do you know what the response was of God's people? Terror. Terror. The scripture says that when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, we don't ever want to experience that again. We need a mediator. We need a go-between. You go talk to the Lord, and then you bring back whatever it is the Lord has to say to us, and we need mediation. And Moses was the mediator. And Moses' life reminds us of one who would come to be the ultimate, consummate mediator. Paul says in 1 Timothy, there's one mediator between God and man, just one, just one, the man Christ Jesus. And he came. And when Christ cleansed the temple in that holy week, he drove out the corruption with a whip of cords. And the scripture says that his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal, a synonym for covet, desire. Jesus was crazy about his desire for his heavenly father, his father's house, his father's will. I have come to do your will, O oh God. Jesus has invaded our crazy, covetous world, and his only desire was to do the will of his father. And he didn't covet because he had everything that he gave up for us. And on the cross, he was punished for our coveting and he purchased forgiveness for our coveting only to give us the robe of covet-free righteousness. And so when we're accepted into God's family, we experience everlasting contentment. So Christians, why would we ever need to covet we will inherit the kingdom. We already have everything. We are heirs. Heirs of grace. Grace that promises a new heart. A heart that finds coveting and uninteresting activity. A heart that's emancipated. You can be emancipated from the chains of never enough. And you can find joy in the enoughness of Christ. In loving others as you have been loved. And experiencing that it is indeed more blessed to give than to receive. And with your new heart, you can be satisfied in Christ we, as a family, can be satisfied in Christ. Amen.